On today's episode of Gathering the Kings. The three of us had made over $100 million in deals with these different companies. Unrealized revenue. Share the knowledge you have. Um, it's my personal opinion that if I don't share the knowledge that I've received or read or learned or gained by attrition, then I shouldn't have that knowledge in the first place. You are listening to Gathering the Kings with Chaz Wolf, featuring fellow seven, eight, and even nine-figure business owners who have real battle scars from business and life, but have prevailed as the king that they are designed to be. We welcome high-performing entrepreneurs to the stage in order to reveal the real of the real on what it takes to build a successful business today. We dissect the good and bad decisions they've made along the way that give a true and accurate picture of the journey of success and how you too can get there. Through this dialogue, you will learn the value of growing your network and surrounding yourself with power players and kings like today's guest. Grab your pen and notebook because we're about to dive in. What's up, everybody? I'm Chaz Wolf, Gathering the Kings podcast. We've got Paul Trowell here on the King stage. My brother, Paul, how we doing? I'm doing wonderful today. Chaz, how you doing? You know, I'm wonderful and I appreciate you asking, but the listener had, doesn't know that we, we've, uh, we've already been in a dance with each other. I was traveling on our original podcast time, had my, all my to-go podcast items with me, and uh, they went forward in the traveling process and without me because I got delayed due to some weather. But here we are, finally. Paul on the King stage. I'm glad that you're here, man. Well, I'm, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Of course. So, Paul, tell us what kind of business that you got. So currently, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for 23 years. This one is probably going to be my last one. I, I was trying to decide whether I retire or do one more. Yeah. Uh, and I decided to do one more because it really hit home for me with people in Texas being arrested for marijuana possession. In 2018, the, the United States legislature and then signed into, in, into law by President Trump and then the, the same year, the Texas legislature signed into effect a hemp bill allowing cannabis usage and consumption for the entire population. And, you know, I was talking to one of my friends who's a lobbyist for a normal, and I spoke to another one who's a lobbyist for marijuana policy project. And I said, you know, I said, I got arrested in 2005 in Texas for bringing my medical marijuana in from California for my chronic migraine. And I really want to get that product to people here and here in the United States. And I'm thinking about moving to Oklahoma because Oklahoma just passed medical. And she said, don't Heather said, don't worry, don't, don't go to Oklahoma, stay here with hemp. And I said, why is that? And she said, because marijuana will be legal in Texas soon. If you start with hemp, then you'll have an established brand that can easily transition into the legal marijuana movement. And I said, yeah, Heather, I said, that's great and all, but you know, health benefits are a very small segment of the population that use marijuana, the, the majority of it is adult use and recreation and hemp just doesn't get you high. And she said, clearly you're ignorant and you don't know what you're talking about. You need to go do your research um, and then sit down with me and, and talk. And I said, okay, fair enough. I am ignorant about the subject. I'm going to go do some research. So for two years, I traveled to every single CBD trade show, every single marijuana trade show, met with countless farmers of hemp and marijuana, went to countless extraction facilities and brought home thousands of samples for my team, volunteer team, of course, you know, what, what a job testing marijuana and cannabis products, right? To evaluate the market and see if, you know, if, see if we can provide a better alternative to products that are in Texas. 
And my goal really was to create products that are as strong or equal, equally strong or stronger than products in legal marijuana states. And I learned about the endocannabinoid system. I learned about all the different cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. And I learned that Delta 9 THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana, which is what the government regulates, is just one of the many THCs in cannabis. There are so many other THCs and CBDs and other cannabinoids like HHC that give the user the same, if not a more desirable effect than Delta 9 THC. So not only are we able to help people with their medical conditions, but for people that want to use it as adult use instead of drinking alcohol, which is poison to the body, or, you know, any other, you know, vice that they may be participating in, they can use the products that we're legally bringing to them. So in February, 2021, I started the Urban Inc. company and the brand Urban Bud to do that. And since then, we have gotten countless letters from people both on Instagram, Facebook, and that email us saying, hey, we read about your story online about being arrested for smuggling your medicine in. And because of of your products, I don't have to do that anymore. And I told myself when I started this company, you know, if I stop one person from being arrested, we've been successful because I have a second degree felony possession of a controlled substance THC on my record until I get pardoned. And I don't want that to ever happen to anybody ever. Yeah, pretty powerful story. And I love, I love from a business perspective, you know, regardless of the, the mousetrap, you just built a better one. Yeah. And that's what, that's what business is. That's what I love about your story. I definitely want to dive more into it. You, you've kind of already answered this. My first question is always why, or like, what's your burning desire? You kind of gave that a little bit for this business with, you know, your story and helping one other person, you know, not being arrested. I think that that's a great purpose and a great why. What's even below that? Like what's Paul's burning desire just as an entrepreneur? To just, I already achieved it, but it was, it was financial independence. Yeah. I grew up in a very well-off family on the Northern shore of Long Island. Wow in the eighties. And when I was in college, my parents opened my footlocker and they found a gay travel guide and they found marijuana. And I was was currently working at Disney world over the summertime of my freshman year, teaching kids, you know, underprivileged kids, how to use computers. This was like 1990. And I got a phone call from the secretary's office saying, you know, you have a phone. I was like, who's calling me here? You know? And it was my parents, very, very conservative, religious, Catholic, saying they found my, well, they found us, they said they found gay porn, which it wasn't, and pot. Um, so they completely cut me off, cut me out of the will, stopped paying for college, stopped paying for my dorm, my apartment for the summertime, and I was homeless. Literally on that phone call, I, I went from having somewhere to live to not having somewhere to live. I think I had like 14 days, you know, left for the, for the months that they paid for the rent. And from that point on, I realized that I have to do, I have to depend on myself in order to be successful in this life. And, and, you know, all I can do is my best. Yeah. And it has that moment in time has really driven every single thing I do. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that each entrepreneur has a moment like that where it's a little bit of a self-awareness or a situational slap in the face of sorts where you realize that like no one's going to give it to you whatever it is whatever success is that we we you know talk about your referencing you know like financial independence which is obviously money money connected but there's a bunch of other things that can go along with that and so i it stinks that it had to come from your parents you know from that uh, from a 
from a disconnect like that. But do you find even in your journey now of 20, almost, you know, 30 years in business and different types of businesses and through the years that other entrepreneurs like you and I have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder? Is that, is that a little bit of a part of the drive for a lot of folks you've met? I did have a chip on my shoulder until I got really, really humbled back in 2013. And, and now I just use that experience as an ego check. I love that. Um, what really, what really helped was going down to Peru and studying with a shaman for 10 days and taking ayahuasca to cure these chronic migraines that I had been plagued with since 1989. I mean, they just got constantly worse over the years and that experience in 2013. And then, you know, studying with the Shibipo tribe in, in the Amazon jungle really, really keep me grounded. Yeah. Yeah. You've got quite the, uh, the Rolodex of experiences. I don't know if, if I'm going to be able to speak to, you know, getting into the Amazon jungle, but I do want to hear practically what's, what's some cool stuff that you've done in your business. So tell us, tell us, you kind of talked about the on-ramp to this business. How did you get in business to begin with? How did you become an entrepreneur? How did it collide for you? That's a great question because I never had any plans of being an entrepreneur. I really didn't. All I wanted to do as a kid was make video games. That's it. My parents bought me an IBM PC junior. I think in like 84. Yeah. When I was in like eighth grade or something like that. And, and my dad wanted me to learn programming classes because he, yeah. you know, he, he, or he'd take programming classes because he, he learned, he believed that programming was the future. And I tried my hand at programming and it really wasn't for me. I just couldn't sit at a keyboard, you know, staring at code all day long. And I tried it. I mean, I really gave it my all. What I really liked doing was playing video games on the computer. I'm like, wow, this is something that I've never experienced before. Right. And I want to do more of it. You know, what kid doesn't want to play video games? I mean, they're all, I mean, it's so prevalent now, but you know, in the early eighties, it was kind of taboo. It was like pornography or, you know, gambling or something. It was not something that, you know, everybody did or talked about because you're isolated in your home and you're doing it by yourself and it's so antisocial and you should be out, you know, playing football and, you know, with the rest of the kids in the neighborhood. So what I found was that I was finding all these bugs in all these games and I would call up the companies, you know, back then it was a phone call and tell them about the bugs. And they said, oh, you know, you know, this is like your 20th phone call about this game. You know, would you mind being one of our beta testers? I said, I don't know what a beta tester is. And she's like, well, it's somebody, you know, that we send the game to before we release it to see if they can, you know, help us get all, all the, the kinks out. Yeah. And I said, I'd love to do that. So they said, well, write a letter to our president of our company telling him, you know, the bugs you found and that you want to be a beta tester. And granted that this time I was 14 years old and <laughs> I thought I was typing on my typewriter and I, I, I was like, you know what? I'm like, if I quadruple space these lines. It'll be a much longer, more professional. So it wound up being like 12 or 13 pages, right? Quadruple spaced, thinking that nobody had ever thought of that trick before, right? Yeah. 14, yeah, yeah. thinking everything. So <clears throat> called the CEO, you know, I, I followed up, which seemed like, you know, six months for me, but it was more like about a week or two. And I got his assistant. She said, oh, we got your letter. You know, we're going to send you to the QA manager. And at the time I thought QA stood for questions and answers, not quality insurance. Sure. So I spoke to the chair manager and he said, yeah, you know, we see your letter here. We see all the bug reports, but you know, honestly, you're, you're a kid, you know, you're, you're a teenager. What do you know about, about debugging games? You know, what do you know about a programming bug versus an art bug versus, you know, a collision detection? I said, I don't, I don't know really honestly know anything about that. I said, but I seem to be finding all the bugs. Yeah. Oh, you know, you know they're like, well, you know, we have three beta testers. They're in their thirties. You know, you know, we're looking for a fourth one, but 
we're looking for somebody that can clearly articulate the bug. I said, well, I don't know if you're making these games for kids or if you're making them for people in their 30s and 40s, but I seem to be finding all the leftover bugs in the finished product. Right. And then guy's like, okay, you make a good point. We're going to send your parents some confidentiality paperwork, sign that, and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get you into the system. And from yeah. that, I started beta testing games. They wanted to hire me out of high school. I said, no, I wanted to get a college degree, got my college degree. And then I did the only thing I could, which was go to work for them at $9 an hour and 95 testing video games. But because I have this drive to succeed, especially after the event in 1989, I was not, I was not happy staying a beta tester. I mean, I wanted to do the best possible or QA test rather, but I wanted to do the best possible job I could. So yeah. every time a game would be, would, would, would release, I would create a business plan of what bugs were in the final version of the game. What's it going to take to patch the game? How much is, you know, it's going to get cost. We'll receive a return on the, on the programming and art efforts post-production. And, you know, they were just like blown away because these people in quality assurance testing games. Aren't, they weren't thinking like that. They're not thinking like they're just looking for bugs and that, you know, and they're, they're clock watching and they're taking their designated breaks and so forth. So I very, very quickly rose up through the ranks at Sierra Online from QA tester to, to lead tester to production coordinator, associate producer. And then I got hired at Activision in Los Angeles as an associate producer and then a production producer. And then I got hired away to open a North American office for Gremlin Interactive, the company that made the Grand Theft Auto series of games. Oh. to bring their games to the U.S. GTA was just one of many. And we got bought by Atari, and then I worked for Atari, and then we started, I started a completely new line of business, which was taking games and bundling them with video cards and sound cards and computers, which is something that nobody had ever done before. Yeah, And it, it was very, very successful business model for both Gremlin and for, and for Atari. So I was lured away to come to Austin, Texas, to do something similar, which was head up their business development efforts of putting games on a DVD back in 2000. Well, wow. nobody was using DVD for storage back in 2000. As a matter of fact, only four of the seven movie studios were using DVDs for movies. They weren't all wow. signed on. So all these DVD replicators were just sitting idle. So they were willing to pay us to use these, me these mediums of storage to get them out there and show the world that you could, A, you could use DVDs as, you know, large storage. Right. So, my idea was to take games, encrypt them, like take the top 10 PC games, encrypt them on the DVD, and then bundle them with all these different computer manufacturers like Dell, Compaq, which is now part of HP, HP, Sony, and Gateway Computers at the time. Right. And we had done three of those deals. We did Sony, we did Dell, and we did Gateway. And my, and I said, you know, I had to make a really big argument to these computer companies. I said, we gotta, we gotta reduce the price from the re MSRP by half because oh. they're not getting a box. They're not getting a physical unit, you know, that they can stare at, that they can feel good about spending $50, you know, that they, they're not right. going to get that. There's something tangible there that they really like. Uh, and I convinced electronic, I convinced all the top publishers to reduce the price by half. And then out of that half, we would take half and split it amongst the companies who were doing those project and give half of that revenue back to the developer. And what I found out, I learned a really good lesson about publicly listed companies and SEC regulations. Apparently the 300,000 shares of stock at 10 cents, which, which over time, the year that we were doing this business rose up to about $3 and 10 cents because they were sending out press releases as we were signing NDAs. Now I didn't know anything at the time about pink sheet listed companies you know, over the counter. 
you know, so and I, and I was wondering why they were sending out press releases for signing an NDA. I'm like, you don't do that. I'm like, everybody signs NDAs every day. So it was a pump and dump that I was, I was working for, but I made a real business out of it. And what happened was the, the board of directors siphoned off all that revenue, never paid the royalties to the video game companies wow. and paid themselves. And then the, what they would also do is issue themselves millions of shares of stock that they would sell in the open market and then, you know, buy things with that. So after they went bankrupt, I said, you know what? I said, I've made a lot of money for all these companies over the last 10 years. I'm going to go ahead and start my own company and, and just do it for myself because these people don't appreciate me and they don't appreciate the effort and the work ethic and everything that I'm putting in there to try and prove to myself that I'm worth living because right. of the incident in 1989, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's when I started my first cell phone game company. I sold that in 05, 06. Had a two-year non-compete, started another one in 2010, sold that one in 2016, and took oh. three years off and then started this one. In. Here, here we are. Yeah. I First off, I, I love the tenacity of, you know, one, you just being placed randomly because that's just kind of what you had done and what you liked, but then turning that into a career and then eventually turning it into a business. I just think it's, like you said, it's an accidental story. It's an accidental business. It's an accidental entrepreneur that we're talking to, but, but not really at the same time, because you had a mind from the beginning of, I want more. And uh, I have found, I don't know, tell me if you agree. I have found that desire or the, the want for more pushes us into a creative state of like, okay, I got to figure this out. And sometimes that eventually gets us to, I got to do this myself because it we're either I'm no longer in alignment with this guy that I'm working for or this company or whatever. And that, that tips us over the edge as entrepreneurs. So it's like, you were an entrepreneur this whole time. I just, just know it. Yeah, you just, you yeah. just finally took the leap. Yeah. The, I guess the inside of all that, I mean, you've had just so many just opportunities of wins and losses. And that's what I want to dive into now. I want to know of a good decision that you made along that journey that you can look back on and you go, this moment right here, I would do that over and over and over again. Something that maybe we can go implement into our businesses. That's a really, really good question. What was the, what was the one thing? The one thing was me getting fed up with being treated like a number because at Activision, Gremlin and Atari, I had given them so much revenue. I mean, un unrealized revenue. It was so much. So the CEO of Activision would come down to our offices and say, Hey, I need, I need, you know, 25 million before the end of the quarter close whatever deals you guys have possible with, the, with this whole bundling thing going on. <laughs> we're like, well, you know, we're far away. We're leaving money on the table and this and that. And blah, blah, blah. He's like, I don't care. He's like, we're going to be short, you know, for our financial forecast. He's like, we need the revenue, you know? So it was, it was, and, and then it was being treated like I just didn't matter. I mean, I wound up getting fired from Activision. Gremlin got absorbed by Atari. So, so Gremlin loved me and, and I loved them, but it was a small family company. And it was time for them to sell. And we did a big deal with Rockstar Games and Sony for, for Grand Theft Auto. So they were very, very happy with, with, with what they got to take home. But Atari really just treated me like a number. And Sierra Online did too, after, you know, after a certain point. So honestly, it was just, I got fed up with putting so much in because I was working anywhere from 12 to 15 hours every single day. Yeah. And I was young, so I could do it, you know, and, and live off not great food, you know, <laughs> poor eating habits and so forth. You can get away with that, you know, when you're in your, in your twenties, not yeah. so much when you're in your fifties, yeah. uh, but yeah, it was that it was, it was, it was just me valuing me finally, 
which right. was very hard for me because of the psychological situation that I encountered in 1990 with my parents. Okay. It's because the with opposite. That, exactly. You're, you're, you're treated like you're worthless. Like you're, you know, you're not, you're not part of this family. You're not worth to worthy enough to be part of this family. Yeah. So for me to make that realization was very pivotal in my opinion. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'm sure a complex that you had to work through. What do you think for a guy that's listening right now or a gal and it really doesn't really even matter how big their business is or small, but they're, but they're ready to go all in again, or they know that they need to go all in on themselves, on their business, whether it was at the beginning, that's what you were just describing is that you decided to go all in on you yeah. as opposed to someone else. And we, we've all done that. If someone's listening today and, and they are a business owner, they own a business, even if they've done $1 in revenue, they've, they've made that choice to go in on themselves at what level we don't know. But even some of the bigger guys that are listening, it's like, okay, there are times where we re go all in. Oh, like we kind of have to do that several times throughout the, throughout the years. So knowing that that was like maybe the, one of the most important things that you did, what would you suggest to a person listening right now who knows that they need to kind of like re up or like recommit or go all in on themselves again, even though that they maybe already made the initial jump, like you're talking about, what would you say to that person? Don't hesitate. The best investment is in yourself. Honestly, it really is. You know, don't buy the fancy car. Don't go out to dinner. Save that every dollar, every penny, every dollar that you spend on something frivolous, like, you know, a meal outside, you could be investing into yourself or your business. I mean, yeah, that, that's honestly the, the best advice I could possibly give because that money adds up very, very fast and you could use that working capital towards, towards your business. It's yeah. just a mindset, really. Most people out there don't have this mindset. It can be taught. Absolutely can be taught. I taught it to myself and I, I that's, that's it really. That's, it's a short answer. Yeah. Love it. Let's flip the coin. Paul, tell me about a bad decision that you made, something that you did along the way that uh, caught you a couple of bruises, as they say, and something that we can learn from, stay away from ourselves. It would probably be being fired from Activision. I, I had, Activision was where we, we started this whole bundling thing. The, these video card manufacturers like NVIDIA, who you're, I'm sure you're probably aware of, they make video cards and AI chips and they really divested or- Let's say changed, um, yeah. Diversified, yeah. 3DFX. Uh, rendition and AMD slash now it's, I mean, at the ATI at the time, now it's AMD because they acquired them. They came to all these different video game companies and said, you know, we're coming out with these chips that do 3D hardware acceleration for games. And I was like, what the hell is that? And they're like, well, you guys are making 3D games, but you're doing it in code. We want you to take all that code and offload it onto the video hardware so that you know how you have a lot more CPU cycles to run your program and you have a lot more computations that you can actually bring back and make the game faster. And I said, well, that's great, you know, but you know, we'd have to incorporate, I mean, that we have planning like, you know, three years out, like we can't just do this all of a sudden willy nilly. So we wound up working a deal out with all, all every single one of these 3D card and 3D video chip manufacturers saying we, they'll reimburse us for not only reimburse us, but they'll pay the opportunity cost of taking a programmer off of a game to re-engineer a game that we've already released to take advantage of the video cards. Right. And, and that was good. That would, that convinced management to do that. And I was like, that's nice and all, but what are we going to do with the game after it's done? Like nobody has these, these cards, like you, right. you have right. to see the market. And so they said, okay, you know, to make the deal a little sweeter, we'll go ahead and bundle them with the cards when we come out with them, which is in you know, like a year or a year and a half. 
that's where this whole business of bundling came in. So as an associate producer at Activision, we had me, I say we, it was myself, the one programmer who I hired externally, and then one tester, production tester that worked in our little three-person team. And that was it. Any art that we needed, we'd outsource to a company. But the, the three of us had made over $100 million in deals with these different companies, unrealized revenue. And it was so much that, like I said, the CEO was coming down saying, hey, you know, we need X amount of money, you know, so quickly, what, what kind of deals? Can and it was me. And there was a business development guy who kind of led the, the sales effort on this. So when bonus time came around, I was getting paid, I think, $51,000 a year. I got paid a $2,000 bonus. And I, I was so sneaky. I, I thought I was sneaky. I sent an <laughs> anonymous email, you know, from a Hotmail account to the CEO saying, you really undervalue your employees. You need to pay them what they're worth. You wouldn't be in the position you're in if you weren't for them. You know, keep your word. It's, it's all about integrity or something like that. Sure. And they traced it back to the, my desktop computer in my, in my cubicle at, at the office. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, we know it's you. I'm like, no, no, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was probably the biggest mistake of, of, of my career. But you know, I mean, in hindsight, it led me to, to, to better things because I, I, again, I wasn't valued there and I found right. Gremlin Interactive or, or Gremlin Interactive found me. And, you know, we, we did great things with Grand Theft Auto. We bring it to the United States, getting a place with Sony. I mean, the game took off after we came out with the third iteration. So yeah. uh, that's really like, you know, as a true entrepreneur, the, the, the pain point turns into a story and then a learning and then, and then some success on top of it. I mean, you can give up and go home or you can, you know, keep plugging away. So yeah. Persistence. I, <laughs> you know, being, spending some time in corporate America, I, I can, I can smell the environment that you were just referencing. And, you know, obviously in small business, we try to stay away from those things and, and we try to be a little bit more family oriented or do the things that like see our people and value them. It's tough. It's tough as a business owner. Like I'm sure everybody listening today has experienced the CEO's seat of your experience, right? Like where they thought that they had delivered or done something well, or maybe just oversought something and, and didn't and had this person leave or cause a ruckus or, or an email or whatever. And so I think it's actually a learning point on the reverse of the corner, not only of what your actions were, but the actions of the CEO and what it caused you to want to do. I think it's actually also a learning point for us here as we learn, because, you know, we're, we can't be all things to all people. And we're definitely not all perfect, especially the bigger the business gets, the, the more money that's handled and managed. Sometimes people make moves that are greedy or cause strife you know it's just money makes people do weird stuff so i appreciate the story because it it brings light on both sides i would hopes what's like okay we're talking about good decisions bad decisions how do you make decisions now you're in a brand new industry it's not anything like videos you've got a lot of decisions to make some that are pretty weighty because you're you know making some large investments i'm sure the the folks that i know in the hemp or cannabis industry are making some substantial investments how do you process a decision today, making good decisions, of course? Like, what's your secret formula? Well, first is to realize that I know nothing. That's the first step. Learn um, it all, right? 35 years in the video game industry, I came into this, you know, just two years of research, learning as much as I possibly can before I open the doors. And it's still a lot of learning. Yeah. How do I make decisions? I ask everybody for their input. I, and I feel like, you know, 
Captain Picard on the on the on the starship of the Enterprise, where where he he he's he's out of options, and he goes suggestions. <laughs> Very Absolutely. quick, yeah. we're going down. Not what he said, but yeah, it was one of those, you know. And and we're you know, it's, the industry is so new that I'm I'm trying I try to put myself in as many roundtables as possible. As a matter of fact, today there's a there's a, a roundtable I'm going to in person in Austin where we just try and learn from each other and help each other. You know, Ram Dass said it best, in my opinion, we're all just walking each other home. Now, now, absolutely, there's going to be competition in the marketplace. Absolutely, some of these people at the roundtable are my competitors. But, you know, if we can if we can learn and share and, or help them, you know, to be better business people, you know, to, you know, be more transparent about their lab reports or, you know, whatever it is, the better it is going to be for the entire industry. So it, it's honestly, it's just learning as much as I can, leaning on the people that are on my team, which are the best. And I love them so incredibly much because the company wouldn't be where we are without my team and, and others in, in other roundtables, you know, that are in the industry yeah. and attending, you know, events all the time and learning from as many people as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Being a learn it all versus a know it all. And then of course, like you said, just, you know, putting yourself around other people, I think is a great decision-making tool. I liked even how you said just being able to be around specific people who maybe you wouldn't naturally think would be a good fit, like a competitor or someone who maybe has even, you know, done something that could potentially harm your business even. I think that when you have freedom in your mind like that, abundance and freedom and and humility is really what I, all the things that I was just hearing you pour on us, man, there is, a, you can operate at a whole nother level when you have those things. Would you agree? Yeah. I, I'm, I mean, we're, we're trying. We're trying. That's all we okay. can do is try, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Paul, I got I got my first speed round question coming at you. It's it's around KPIs, and so I know that you're in a new industry and you're still learning all. But I got to know if you could only pick one thing to track, what would it be? one thing to track? Which KPI is the most important to you in the tech business? Uh, it would be sell through. Okay, give me a little sell, bit more. Sell, sell through. So we sell ninety nine percent of our sales right now are to stores, okay, and they sell to their to their customers. We we have you know a retail a website presence as well. And, and that's definitely where our big growth is going to happen, but sure. it's, it's our product selling into the stores and then selling through to the customer. That's really where I see, see the success. And I do a lot of research and formulation myself to make sure that as the end user, if I was the end user and I bought this product, would it be something I was happy with? And, you know, that's why it takes us like six months to do R and D on one product, one vape or one gummy or whatever, because we want that sell through to be a hundred percent, not fifty percent. Right. If, yeah. if the sell through is fifty percent, we've done a horrible, a horrible job. Yeah. Well, you've you've got waste, and then in, more than that, you're not delivering what what's wanted in the marketplace. Exactly. Yeah, we're just yeah. pushing on people, and they're taking it for whatever reason, you know, relationship, or they want the coolest new thing, or whatever. But then we're right. stuck with it. So we we recently just went through a recall because one of the cannabinoids that we've been using was deemed by the DEA to be a controlled one substance. So, you know, we could have either stuck the store with those products or we could have taken them back and given them store credit and company yeah. credits. And, and that's what we did. And it hurt. Don't get me wrong. It hurt, but it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Love that. Love that a little slide in there of a good decision with a vendor or your people. It, uh, it's always, it's always good just to make things right. Even if the scale is tipped, I would much rather have the scale tipped where I don't owe anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where value that's, that's where you, you just, you just overbring the value. Even if it's in a situation where you're trying to make good on a, on something, you can still bring value by tipping the scale. What Paul, what book would you recommend? Or maybe a business resource for someone who's trying to grow today? I met Stephen Covey back in 1994 
And he had just come out with his book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. That's my top two. The, I think really the number one is the four agreements. Okay. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. Haven't, haven't heard anybody talk about that one in a minute. What's, yeah. uh, what's your takeaway from that one? You know, keep your word. Don't take anything personally. I forgot what the other two were, but it's, just, it's basically the golden rule which sounds simple enough and the book is really, really small. I think it's maybe 50, 75 pages, but the concepts are so broad and have such sweeping ramifications for everybody that you do business with, whether it be the dry cleaner or the, the, the letter carrier that delivers your mail or your coworkers. Yeah. So, you know, I would love to say something like how to win friends and influence people or, you know, whatever, but it's that one. And then, and then Stephen Covey's seven habits. Yeah. Well, those, those all three of those or any in that, in that realm are, are great classics. I mean, I say classics, but they'll live on is my point. They're not going anywhere. That's for sure. What do you think about intentionally networking or masterminding with other entrepreneurs? You kind of already mentioned roundtables that you're trying to get around other people, competitors, even what are, what are maybe some of the other value points that you'd say to maybe someone listening who hasn't gotten around some other folks like that share the knowledge you have um it's my personal opinion that if i don't share the knowledge that i've received or read or learned or gained by attrition then i shouldn't have that knowledge in the first place yeah and i know you know obviously clearly i'm not going to you know give company trade secrets or proprietary information but anything any knowledge that we can do to further especially the hemp and cannabis industry the right. better because lawmakers are so far behind the curve and this really is medicine for millions and millions of people and you know just just share and and you'll be amazed at what comes back to you yeah. but you don't don't do it with the intention of i'm going to share this because i want it to come back to me times three or whatever that's the wrong intention do it business. because you want to help others that's right yeah it's interesting i i have a, a short little interview i don't i don't i don't grill too too hard but I make a big point when someone's interested in joining our seven and eight figure mastermind is that right there, that it's, this is not networking. This is not you trying to, you know, I don't know, make another, make another million. Although all the businesses that I'm aware of, a lot of even our podcast guests are growing their businesses. Like that's, that's fine. They're growing their connections. They're growing their network. All these things are totally fine. But it's, are you showing up to serve? Are you showing up to give? I'm totally good with you getting. Trust me, there's going to be plenty of value at the table. That's my job as the facilitator or as the person gathering the kings to make sure that I'm putting the right people at the table where I know for sure there's going to be value. But you better believe it. If I'm going to give you an invite, you better bring the value. Not be, not be looking to take. You better be looking to give today. Yeah. Uh, which is exactly what we're even doing right now. On the way podcast. more fun giving. Way more fun it's giving. way more fun. It really is. I was just talking about this. Yesterday, actually, I had an old podcast guest from like, I don't know, probably six, seven months ago. And uh, we caught up on a real estate transaction we were both looking at. And I was helping him with some thoughts on some short-term rental stuff. And we were going back and forth. And and this this idea of, you know, like out giving each other. I've got a couple couple guys in the groups that are or that are local here to Kansas City. And uh, it's like, it's like I get a gift or we go to lunch and I'm trying to like hurry up quick and take the tab. Like there's all these like little tick knickknack things that we're trying to do to like out give each other, you know? And so I, th I just think it's, it's just another game. Like you said, it's another level of the game. It's no longer about, you know, what can I get? But it's, uh, it's like, how can I have fun today by serving? Joe Vitale taught me something really well, really amazing, actually. He said, if you make a, a game out of giving, it makes it way more fun. Yeah. So what I do is I took one of his, I took one of his, his, his ideas. And when 
I'm out and about, not in an affluent place, but like a Walgreens or a CVS or, you know, like a, like, you know, a place that everybody, everybody goes to just stash something, stash either a dollar or, you know, just think about how, how excited you are when you find a quarter on the floor, which never happens, right? You're always pennies or whatever, but you know, for a dollar. And then, so, you know, <clears throat> when I lapse with the dollars, I'll go above and beyond and do like a 50 or a hundred. And what I'll do is I'll yeah. stick it where inside the packaging where they won't see it until they get home and they open it up like, oh my God, what, you know, is this real? <laughs> and that, and that is just so gratifying because you never know where it's going to land. Yeah. Yeah. You don't actually get the gratification of seeing them enjoy it, but you know, it's happening That's at some point yes. somewhere. Yeah. You know, you help somebody, even a dollar, you know, hell, I would love to find a dollar right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the joy of it. It's really not yeah. the amount. It's the joy, yeah. even for the receiver. It's really good. What, what do you... What do you think about, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a word of obsession. And it's, it's my belief that as business owners, we easily fit into this obsessive category and we go all in on the business and that's how we win. So I love the word obsession, but my question to you is how, how do you do that as an entrepreneur in all the other areas of your life? Yeah, Family, really kids, relationships, like how, how do we do them both at the same time, Paul? You can't, you, you, you have to find a balance and everybody's balance is going to be different. So I was married for 22 years and we found a great balance between our work lives or our careers, um, our, us being together and then our independent selves as well. There's like three yeah. parts of it. Cause I, in my opinion, those are three important parts because I have my independent self that I value. So I'm in a new relationship now and before this relationship. It was all about work. I was just obsessing about work. And I, I got into a skydive sky instructor. I'm a, you know, wingsuit flyer, a videographer. And, and I got into an accident and I had to end my skydiving career in 2019. And skydiving and my work slash passion were the only things I like to do in, in, in the world. It's like I would be at the, I would be at the drops on every weekend, you know, do right. seven or eight jumps on both days and then wow. go balls to the wall Monday through Friday. And now that that's gone and I haven't, I, I can't do any adrenaline sports because I have like four fused discs. So my obsession really has been about the company and making better products and, you know, right. tweaking these little things to make it better. And we, Christian and I have been dating since August. So now it's all about finding that balance again. I mean, we'll find it. It's just, you, you have to, you know, it takes time. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And. Try not to bring the work into the homes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I have to, I have to spar with you a little bit here because I agree with you. The word usage of balance is, and it's an icky word to me. And in your situation that you're describing, it's like you have to find the obsession with the new relationship, or you have to find the obsession with your individual time. And mm -hmm. so what that looks like, and I don't have it perfect by any means at all. I'm still like working this out. That's like literally why I bring it up on the, on the pod because I want to hear people's opinions on it uh, is like, okay, so my individual time is like, it's, that's my morning routine. Like I need to be obsessed with my morning routine because that's me time, right? Like whether that's my breath work or whether that's my workout or whether that's my Bible reading or whether that's my, you know, my work on my own. Like I'm like, I get to work in the morning. I kind of like that sometimes. Or that could be time with my wife and, and date night. And I shut off my phone and I'm, I'm away from work or if i'm i'm all in the doors shut they know not to bother and i'm like zoned in like i think i think we're saying the exact same thing yeah but but to me that's like i'm all in in all areas yes as opposed to this like i have to take away from one to give to the other 
that's not obsession. That's not what what led us to be successful in business to begin with, right? I'm taking the lesson from your shutting the phone off thing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, hey, I said that out loud because that was a suggestion from my wife that I'm still learning to do. <laughs> so for any entrepreneur listening right now, um, just keep at it, right? Keep keep turning the phone. I like uh, oftentimes I'm like. I got to turn it over even while I'm like, look, I have to do the same exact thing. You know, I got to, I got to turn so it over. We, otherwise we, it's just like, stop. here's a great one. So when we go out with friends, what we'll do is we'll take all of our phones and place them in the middle of the table. That's right. That's good. On or off. And then whoever touches their phone first picks up the check for the whole table. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And then that and way, you had, and then you that, some... you're kind of incentivized to eat something expensive and not touch your phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and stare at each other because it might be a stare off for a while. Oh, yeah, you, yeah, everybody winds up, somebody winds up always getting their phone because there's an emergency somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. I love me. it. I love it. I got one last question here for you, Paul. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you had a chance to whisper in the younger Paul's ear, what would you say? Don't be so angry. I Tell carried the anger with me for so long and it permeated everything I did. It permeated every single decision I made. Yeah. And I really regret a lot of the decisions I've made because of the anger. Because when you're not in therapy and you don't talk about the things that have happened to you in your life and bring them up voluntarily, they come out, it'll either come out in therapy or it'll come out some other way. And my anger towards my parents for doing what they did came out and I was not a pleasant person a lot of the time. I was just dem so demanding of people I work with or people I work for or whatever. And I'm just grateful for, for my therapist and, and trauma therapy, honestly. Yeah. I'm still in it. Yeah. I'm still, yeah. Yeah, there's, I think that there's a really, it's a continuation of becoming the best version of you, letting go of certain things and accepting fresh beliefs and letting go of even limiting beliefs. But it's like, that's a journey. Like you just said at the very end there, it's not like you're done. That's just, you've just reached it this far. Yeah. And, and what I have found, whether it's a, a therapist or a group of business owners or your spouse, like there are people in essence around you that, that uh, can walk through you, talk, walk with you through it and that that makes it all the sweeter because we're not alone so which sounds a little cheesy but it's so true and everything's always better with friends i think i completely <laughs> agree completely agree well how can the listener find you whether whether they're in texas and can buy your products or maybe they're across the country how can they find you and get connected to you we're on the web at urbanbud.com it's h-e-r-b-a-n-b-u-d.com i'm also on link paul trout t-r-o-w-e Perfect. Well, we'll drop all that in the show notes for people easily to connect with you. You've been a storyteller here today, and I've enjoyed listening to your stories and the ups and downs of, of how you've been successful. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing. I think that's the most important part of the journey is to see guys further down the road or gals and be able to know how to bob and weave as we go. So Paul, thank, thank you, you for being here. Blessings on your new business. And thank you, uh, thank you for being here and the giving of yourself. I appreciate you having me on, Chad. Thank you for listening to Gathering the Kings today. I hope that you were able to pull out a few nuggets to go apply into your business right away. More importantly, though, I hope that you're realizing that it takes more to be successful than just being by yourself, doing it all on your own, carrying the weight all by yourself. What I have realized, not only in my own journey from multiple businesses and multiple different industries and now interviewing literally over two or 300 other very successful seven, eight, and nine-figure business owners is that it's tough to do it alone. And so Gathering the Kings literally exists to bring together successful entrepreneurs. In fact, we are putting together 1,000 kings, specifically 
who are grateful but not done. We're intentionally assembling kings who fight tooth and nail for their business, family, and communities. And here's what we believe, that in the pursuit of excellence in those areas, that it ignites within us the responsibility to govern power and forge a lasting legacy. So if that relates and, and resonates with you, and you know that you need people around you, sharp, qualified, other very successful business owners, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com. I want you to take a look at what we're doing and see if it makes sense for you to be part of our pursuit to 1,000 Kings. Talk soon.